Many of you probably have heard of Augustine of Hippo. It's probably not how you have heard him referenced, Augustine of Hippo. What in the world does that mean? Um, He was the bishop of Hippo in North Africa. Augustine, as is frequently, uh, he's frequently known as Saint Augustine or Augustine, uh, a very well-known church father. In fact, of all of the figures in church history, that if, if you've had any exposure at all to the history of Christianity, this is probably one of those figures that really towers in the minds of a lot of people. Uh, some have even said that uh, Augustine is, is kind of the, that everything in terms of historical theology in the last 1,500 years really spins off of Augustine. There's so much reference back to him. And even in the Protestant Reformation, uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin and others were highly influenced, heavily influenced by Augustine. But in around 427 AD, it's 1500 or so years ago, Augustine completed his massive book called The City of God. Maybe you have heard of that. Few people have actually read it. It's over a thousand pages. It's, it's pretty massive. Maybe you've, maybe you've had some experience with it. But in this famous book, he distinguishes between, and it's really a, a running contrast between these two, he distinguishes between the city of God on the one hand and the city of man on the other. The city of man also called the city of this world or the earthly city, so the city of God and the city of man. The city of this world is a city, as he says, that rejects the power and excellence of humility. He says that it aims at dominion and that it can be characterized by love of self. And so this is what he writes about the city of man, the earthly city, the city of this world. He says this, we see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. I love this, so good. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt for self. It's beautiful. In fact, the earthly city glories in itself, The heavenly city glories in the Lord. What a stark contrast that is between these two cities. And it is interesting that we get something similar to this in the Bible with this place, or really we could say this idea of Babylon. Maybe that's a, a, I'm sure of it, that's a word that you've heard. You've, you've heard it in the context of the Bible. It has a negative connotation. Maybe you don't have much of a reference for what it is or, or how we are to understand it, but you've heard Babylon and you think, oh, that's bad. That does not sound good at all. Well, Babylon, which was a real ancient city, kind of came to prominence in the 18th century BC. That's when it really began and it went through uh, iterations of of greatness, so to speak, at least in the eyes of man. But it was a real ancient city that comes to typify in the Bible the city of man. So it's not just a place, it's an idea. It's a larger concept, this Babylon. And for to understand kind of what it typifies, it is a center of earthly power opposed to God. That is what Babylon essentially is. So let me give you a few passages of Scripture that show how Babylon is treated throughout the Bible. So first, Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. And here it is a historic city. This is very much uh, ancient Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century B.C. Uh, They came and they sacked Jerusalem. They tore down the temple. They were a massive power. But listen to what King Nebuchadnezzar says. This is in the time of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've read of that, perhaps, in in the book of Daniel. But listen to these words. These words drip with the kind of idea of the city of man that I'm talking about. This is what King Nebuchadnezzar says. He walks out on his balcony. He says, Is not this great Babylon? which I have built by my mighty power 
as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. That's what he says. Maybe you said something similar when you walk out on your back porch and look at your nice landscaping work. I don't know. But this is Nebuchadnezzar. This is, this is the heart, the attitude. He looks out and sees majestic, mine, my glory. Look at me. So we have it very much as a literal place in history and time and space there with ancient Babylon in the 6th century B.C. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, it refers to the city of Rome, not to the place in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, but to Rome. And there, Peter writes at the end of his epistle, she who is at Babylon, he's talking about the church at Rome, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So we see there, Babylon moves from a, a, a specific location that is, in fact, Babylon, the Babylonians, to another place that is like Babylon in those same sentiments that Nebuchadnezzar expressed. So there we have in 1 Peter. And then at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, it is a reference to godless society in general and to the world system at the end of history. So when, when Christ returns, and we all represent various end times views in this church, even on the elder board, we have different views of how it's all going to go down at the end, all the specifics of that. But what we know is that at the end, there will be an antichrist figure, a man of lawlessness. And there will be a world system at the end of history that will really encapsulate the sentiments of Nebuchadnezzar. It will really be this godless society. And so chapter 17, verse 5 of Revelation refers to Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. And then you have in chapter 18, verses 1 to 2, it says this, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So here we have three very different references to a Babylon. We have the, the city of Babylon, quite literally, historically. We have Rome, which is like Babylon. And then we have godless society, a world system at the end of time that is also referred to as Babylon. So let me give you this quote. From Gordon, Gordon Wynnum. He's an Old Testament scholar, and I strung together a number of phrases he uses because I think he so well captures a description of Babylon with these words. This is what he says Babylon epitomizes the folly of humanistic culture. Throughout Scripture, Babylon is seen as the embodiment of human pride and godlessness that must attract the judgment of Almighty God. It symbolizes the accumulated wickedness and impiety of mankind. That is Babylon. And this Babylon theme that we can trace throughout the Bible all the way up to Revelation goes back to what we're going to look at today. It goes back to Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. See how significant this story is in the Bible for this theme that comes out of it that we can trace all throughout Scripture and we can associate with the world and its systems and even what the world will be like at the end of time. So if you'll go ahead and go there with me. Maybe you already knew that's where we were headed. Genesis 11. We always pick up where we left off. So it's pretty easy to anticipate where we're going to be. Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. We have this story of the Tower of Babel. Now, by the way, let me just say this quickly. Babel and Babylon are the same word. Okay, so when you look at this word used here in Genesis 11 in Hebrew, and, and then you, you search for that word throughout the Old Testament, you see it in the prophets, you see it in Kings, you see it all throughout, and it's the same word that's translated Babylon. So this is the word used uh, by Old Testament authors, both for this specific place here and for the later Babylonians, for Babylon later. Babel is the word that is used throughout the Hebrew Old Testament. 
The title for the sermon this morning is The City of Man. So if you will, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to read these, these verses. This is God's Word. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Apparently it wasn't quite high enough. Came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. You can go ahead and be seated. Before I pray, I just want to make one quick note here. This uh, is the how of chapter 10. So you see all this dispersing going on in chapter 10. Well, what chapter 11 does is it goes back behind the scenes of chapter 10, the genealogy, the dispersion, dispersion of all these people all over the world, and it tells you how this actually happened. The different languages mentioned in chapter 10 and the different locations of all the people spreading out. This is, this is the original story of, this is the origin of it. This is how it happened, chapter 11. So let's pray. Let's thank God for his word and ask that this would not just be a, an empty time of gathering together, but that the Lord would really use his word to change us, that we would be different leaving here, that we would be better servants of him, that we would trust him more, cling to his promises, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Holy Scripture. We know that in the world's eyes, what we are doing here this morning is utter stupidity. Maybe there are some here this morning who think the same. It's just kind of folly, kind of silly, waste of time. Can't wait till lunch. Father, would you show us different? Would you show us the truth that your word is in and of itself powerful, that it is in and of itself sufficient, it's effective, that it is perfect, that it is self-authenticating. Father, we thank you for your word. And we sit under it this morning with humility. Help our hearts to be humble before you. Father, our minds to be humbled before you. Lord, we thank you that you've gathered us as a people here at Four Corners. We thank you for the the fellowship that we experience here at this church. We thank you for one another, a means by which you desire to bring us to the heavenly city, to our ultimate destination. Father, we thank you for each other. We pray that this morning it would be a time of worshiping you through your word and through loving one another. God, that we would not let the bumping into one another pass without intentionality, that we would not let this time of sermon pass without mental and affectionate attentiveness, God. We pray that your grace would be with us. We thank you that you always keep your promises. We thank you that you will not leave us to ourselves. And so we confess this morning our sins to you. We pray that you would protect us from the evil one and that you would give us what we need from your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dive in 
to our text today. I want to give you just two big takeaways concerning this story. Before we even get into the details and walk through it, just these are two big picture ideas or takeaways that I don't think we can miss, especially as we come up to the end of this bigger section, Genesis 1 through 11. And the first of these is simply this. This really happened. This is not a myth. This is not a way of explaining different languages in the world. Uh, Linguists and scholars can't give an explanation for the origin even of the Indo-European languages, much less the origin of language in general. The Bible tells us how it happened. It tells us that God did it, we'll talk about this later, in some kind of miraculous way. The same God who said, let there be light. This is nothing. Confusing the languages of people. The same God who made Adam with language embedded in his mind, and Eve as well, is the God who scrambled all of that at the time of Babel. So the big, one of the big ideas I want you to get is this really happened. Genesis 1 through 11 is not a string of myths. There are some even well-known evangelical scholars, and I won't mention any names in particular, but there are some well-known evangelical scholars who will say that what we find in Genesis 1 through 11 is somehow distinct from the kind of historical writing that, say, Luke, for example, wants to take us into when we get to the Gospel of Luke. Some who will say that what we have in Genesis 1 through 11 is a kind of myth with a deeper meaning, but it's really trying to understand the theology of the Israelites in a mythical kind of framework, in dialogue with the myths of the ancient world, and so forth. But here's one thing I want you to see. This is so key. Jesus himself directly affirms the historicity of many of these events. This is fascinating. When you go through the Gospels, and I just want to mention three of these to you, three uh, events that we've looked at in Genesis 1 through 11, which many want to say is just a big string of myths. Three specific examples where Jesus assumes historicity, that this really happened in place and time, and it has import, not just in some kind of abstract metaphorical way, but it has import because it actually happened, and it happened in this way. So in Mark 10, 6 and following, we have Adam and Eve, and Jesus affirms that God made them male and female. And then he talks about the two becoming one flesh. And he uses this to help us understand that from the beginning, not the beginning of some kind of idea, the beginning of time, the beginning of humanity, from the beginning, this is the way it was. There's one man, one woman joined together for life. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus assumes that this this happened, that God made Adam, yes, from the dust. Not a fairy tale that he made Eve from the side or rib of Adam. Then we have Cain's murder of Abel. In Matthew 23, 35, Jesus is going back and looking at how these false teachers have, are, are part of the family of, of the murderers of the righteous. He says, going all the way back, the righteous, the blood of righteous Abel. There he's referring to the murder of Abel by Cain, referring to it as a specific historical instance that leads to all the other murders of the righteous that that come throughout history and that will ultimately lead to Jesus' own execution on a Roman cross. Cain's murder of Abel happened. It's not a metaphor. It happened. Just like we got in our cars and drove here this morning. Cain killed his brother. In space and time, in history. And then the flood. Jesus doesn't talk about the flood as some kind of extended metaphor. He says the flood swept people away at the time of Noah. That's how he refers to the flood in Matthew 24, 39. So what's my point? My point is to take Genesis 1 through 11 because it is embarrassing To Babylon, because it is embarrassing to the world 
that we believe these things. To take that and to twist it and turn it into some kind of metaphor that's different from the rest of the Bible is false. And unfortunately, there are many, many among evangelicals even who would fall into this error. May we not fall into this error. And may we choose wisely those whom we follow, listen to, read, podcast, and so forth. So this really happens. Second, this is a call to flee. What do I mean by that? Well, Revelation 18.5. Remember the passage that Pete came up and read? He read Revelation 18.1-5. and talks about Babylon at the beginning. But what does it say in that last verse he read? Verse 5. Listen to this. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says to every generation. Listen. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. Lest you take part in her sins. Lest you share in her plagues. Every family, every generation needs to hear the words, come out of Babylon. Come out of her. Do not take part in her evil. Do not drink her folly. Come out of her, my people. You know, this does not tell us that we should flee to a monastery somewhere or a cave. And there are many great men in history who did that. One of the trips that Jennifer and I have taken that was particularly exciting was when we went to Subiaco, which is right outside of Rome. And that's, that's where Benedict, you know, you've heard of the Benedictine monks, the, the, the Benedictine order. That's where he, he fled from the debauched society of Rome and went there to a cave and, and, and began to, to meditate on scripture and pray and just devote himself to prayer. So I'm not, I'm not throwing those guys under the bus. St. Anthony, the early hermit, so praised by Athanasius, the great church father who celebrated and who affirmed so strongly the deity of Christ. I'm not, I'm not trampling on those individual expressions, but what I am saying is that the Bible does not give us a picture that we should run away to a cave or run away to a monastery. It tells us that we are in the world. John 17, Jesus says, you're in the world. Daniel, right up in the world, literally in Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Taking in the knowledge and wisdom of the Babylonians, of the Chaldeans. They're doing things to serve that king. To serve those people. We see this with Daniel among the Babylonians and among the Persians. So we know that we are not, by coming out of her, we are not to, to, to flee from the world geographically and, and create some kind of enclave of, of, of subculture. That's not it. But it is in our being, being, in our doing, in our affections, in our thinking, in our attitude, in our speech. We are not to be as Babylon. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is no better place to consider love of the world than when you come to Babylon. When you come to Babel. This perfect image of what it looks like to love and be the world. So I think this is such a fitting time to consider this. Come out. And you know what? That looks different for each of us. I don't even know what the application is for you. I don't know what the application is for me specifically even now. But here's the thing. We must seek God's help with that. We must ask God daily, what does it mean to come out of the world? What does it mean not to be saturated in my own heart with worldliness? Only the Holy Spirit can lead us away from Babylon. So those are two big takeaways. Just to kind of cover over everything we're going to look at, I want you to see those two things. This really happened, and this is a call to flee. So with these two big takeaways in mind, there are four things to consider as we walk through the text itself this morning. You can find these on your bulletin. Good news, I guess. Uh, We're only going to cover the first two today. So next week we will finish the Tower of Babel or the City of Man, as I've called it. We'll finish that next week as we look at the last two points. But here they are, four 
considerations. You'll see them in your bulletin. The place, the plan, the perception, and the prevention. The place, the plan, the perception, the prevention. We will cover the place and the plan this morning and then finish up next week. As we go through this story, we could get distracted. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Even in his day, Martin Luther commented that there were so many people speculating about the height of the tower and, and the building materials precisely. I mean, that's what we do. We, 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 we lose sight of, of what the text is about and we ask all these silly questions and we have all these speculations that take us away from what God wants us to see and what God wants us to do in response to his word. And so Martin Luther comments that in his time, that this is all nonsense and silliness and fantasy to be spending so much time focusing on how high the tower went up into the sky. What he says is that our focus rather should be on the nature of the sin at Babel. That really should be the focus of the Bible reader. And so that's what we're going to focus on as we go through each of these four points. We're going to look at ultimately what is the sin that is being condemned in this story. We all know it's bad. We saw the Babylon theme. So what is it about Babel that is so bad? So first, let's look at the place. Look at verses 1 and 2 again, if you will. Verses 1 and 2. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Innocent enough, right? What's the big deal? Why is this such a bad story? Maybe, maybe you think, well, it's not bad so far, but wait. Wait until you get to the next verse. Then it starts to get bad. I think we already see how bad it is here, just in these first two verses. What we have here is a people moving to a place. The people is the human population collectively. That's what's amazing about this. Uh, We get the sense this is the mass of mankind. What that means precisely, we don't know. We do know that in the genealogy, that goes back to Shem, we seem to have these two lines. We have this line of Joktan, which ends up in the east, in Babel, we should say. And then this line of Peleg, which seems to be outside of all of that and ultimately leads to Abraham. So how, the, how people are geographically related at this time and to what extent we're talking about literally every human being, I think that's a little unclear. But we are meant to see that this is the human population, collectively speaking. Referred to as the whole earth. They are one people with a single language. Can you imagine that? None of those little microphones at the United Nations or anything like that. Just open, free conversation. All one single language. What in the world was that language? Who knows? Who knows what that original language, what did Adam and Eve speak in the garden? Who knows? Once again, that would be a point that could trip you up. That would be one of those things that you could spend a lot of time uh, thinking about and getting distracted about and so forth. There's plenty of those in the Bible. We don't know what the language was, but there was one of them. So that's the people. The place is literally from the east. Best translated actually eastward, I think. Because we get the same word or combination of a preposition and a word. We get the same Hebrew construction in Genesis 13, 11. And there we read, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, eastward. Same word, and I think that's the way we should take it. Not literally from the east, because the preposition is from. Not literally from the east, but eastward, as it should be understood. There we remember the story of maybe of Abraham and Lot where uh, the, the servants of Abraham and his nephew Lot are arguing with one another and Lot leaves. He goes away with his servants and we know where he goes. He goes to the east. And what does that mean? He goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. It gets destroyed. And so that's 
a good reference for understanding where they are going. This place is a large plain in the land of Shinar, a fertile land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in the land of Mesopotamia, as I said before, in modern-day Iraq, between the two great rivers. Pretty interesting, and I think very important, ironic, that this is roughly the place where the Garden of Eden would have been. When you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 14, this is what we're talking about. That area, who knows where, where it had been. There's been garden, once again, there have been Garden of Eden explorers. People who've trekked out to try to find the Garden of Eden. They could find it. We haven't been able to find that yet. But it's in this general area, this area where you have the Tower of Babel. So as the people began to move from the area of the mountains of Ararat in modern-day Turkey or Armenia, they traveled southeast to this place in Mesopotamia. So that's, that's what's happening on the surface. But what's going on here at a deeper level? And I think we could sum it up with two words. So I want to give you just two words to help us understand, at least at this point, What is going on? Once again, with Martin Luther in view, focusing on the sin of humanity that we're meant to get a hold of here and understand. So two words. The first is independence. And the second word is misuse. Independence and misuse. So let's look first at independence. Commentators often debate the nature of the sin at Babel. But the starting point really has to be independence. Whatever it is that we are to make of the sinfulness of these people, what it, what, what it is that they did wrong, we have to start with independence. What was God's command in Genesis 1, 28? Repeated again in chapter 9, verse 1. Remember Noah and his sons come off of the ark And God blesses them, but then he commands them. He gives them an imperative. He tells them to do something, gives them a directive, gives them instructions. And this is what he says. Be fruitful and multiply. And here it is. Fill the earth. So what do they do? Fill the earth? No. Their response is to settle in one place, as we find at the end of our passage. To settle. Instead of filling, we have settling. It says they found and then they settled. First, they discover something. They come across this place. They're walking along and they see it. It takes hold of their hearts. This is nice. This would be a great place to build a city. And so, after discovering it, they settle there. This is a response of disobedience. And at the center of disobedience, and I want you to catch this, at the center of disobedience is always independence. What do I mean by that? Independence and disobedience. Well, what is independence? Independence is going our own way, doing what we want to do, acting in accordance with our own assessment of reality. This is what we are, this is what we are speaking into with our discipline of our children. It is their disobedience, but their disobedience is a symptom of their independence. That they've decided they no longer look to you, parent, for direction. They no longer look to you for wisdom. They no longer look to you for an assessment of what is, what should be, what ought to be, what is not, what is bad. And they got it figured out. They go their own way. They do their own thing, whether this is a, a small act of step, stepping off at the toys on the way to the toothbrush Or whether this is a large act, maybe throwing a rock at their friend after you've told them to put the rock down. Or many other things that we, these these don't come from this past week, by the way, just thinking of them. But they're anything that demonstrates this independent thinking, this independent assessment of reality. And remember this, this is exactly what we saw in the garden, was it not? We tend to look at the garden and we say disobedience, yes. But the deeper issue of the disobedience of Eve and of Adam is independence. Eve's act of eating the fruit followed her independent assessment of reality. Remember what it said. She saw. 
Hmm. She began to think independently of God. She began to think and feel and reason and will independently of God and his word. So she saw her own seeing, her own assessment is what drove her. She concluded based on her own assessment. She's wise. She can handle this. She's godlike. She had already bought the lie. She had already, in a sense, become godlike in taking God's place to assess reality. She concluded that the fruit was quite good, beautiful, and able to make her wise. And that is exactly what we find here in the Tower of Babel. They have decided that their own discovering of this place, their own assessment of it, is itself superior to God's command, to God's word, to God's evaluation of reality. So I want to say this to us by way of application. The battle against disobeying God's word is a battle against an independent mind. You know, we live in a world that praises autonomy, that praises independence, that being able to chart our own course, being able to express our own selves, being able to choose our own whatever, cereal. There's a million different cereals on the cereal aisle, all the way from that to the way we construct our worldviews. And everything else, we are accustomed to being people who have much independence. And the battle against disobedience for the Christian is the battle against having a mind, an assessment of reality that is independent of anything God has said. Independent of his word. But it's not just their discovering and settling that we see. We see also that they have moved Eastward, And I mentioned this a moment ago. I want to give you a couple of passage, passages that help to fill out what this eastward means. Chapter 3, verse 24. Listen closely to the language. This is at the, after the fall. God drives them out of Eden. And he says, it says this. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. At the east of the garden... So where are these people going? Where are Adam and Eve going when God drives them out of the garden? They're going eastward. And then in Cain, with Cain, chapter 4, verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Adam and Eve driven east. Cain driven further east. What does that mean? It means from the presence of the Lord. This is life. Babel, we're already seeing this. We haven't even gotten into the details of what they said and what they purposed to do. But we're all, the language is already telling us that this is life apart from God. This is society and culture apart from God. Apart from his presence, life lived outside of his presence. So that's the first word I want you to get is independence. Here's the second word. Misuse. Misuse. What do I mean by misuse? The first verse reminds us that these people were given a gift. I alluded to this earlier. They were given a gift. One language. Anyone who has maybe studied abroad or been in another country will understand how beneficial this is. And how difficult it is to master another language. How difficult it is to be in a room filled with people who don't speak your language and they're just talking to each other and you're on the margins. This made human communication and cooperation very easy. And there was much potential. This is what we need to see. There was much potential. As we go into these verses, much potential for the spread of truth and worship. Of God among people. To use this communication, to use this ability to easily commune with one another, to promote the truth of God and His glory. That's not what we see. Kent Hughes describes it this way this communion of language ought to have promoted a godly oneness of faith. But sin was alive and well among Noah's. Descendants. The early church father, John 
Chrysostom says this, they used the privilege given them for evil purposes. God gave them something. And what did they do with it? They misused it. They twisted it and used it for sin. Rather than using God's good gift for God's glory, it became a vehicle for human sin. So here's what we need to consider. What are we doing with what God has given us? You know, it's amazing. Being in a church, and particularly being uh, an elder in a church, it's amazing how much you get to know about people's lives. And it is amazing to see all the ways that God has, has gifted people. To see all the things that God has given us. And I don't mean just things like physical things. I mean qualities. I mean personality traits. I mean talents. Dispositions and so forth. So many riches represented in this room. Things that God has given us for his glory. What are we doing with what God has given us. Let me ask it this way. Is it for God or self? Because that's precisely what we're going to see with these people at Babel. It was not for God. The gift of one language was not used for God and his glory. It was used for self and sin. So if nothing else, I think this morning, maybe we can do a little bit of an inventory of our use. Each of us. What has God given me? As you leave here this morning, you're thinking about, what is it that God is, has given me that, that I often turn to pride? I mean, how often do we do that? How often do we pat ourselves on the back? We see things in our lives that, that, that we reckon as good. We reckon as valuable, maybe praiseworthy or commendable, whatever. We see it and we think about it for a moment. We like it. And man, we just start getting glorified in the self We just get really big like a hot air balloon going right up to the heavens. When in fact, all those things should point us to God, the giver and his glory. So we consider these opening verses. As we consider these opening verses, as we consider the place, we see independence and misuse. But now I want to take you to the second point as we finish up this morning. We're not going to do four. If you missed that early on, you're kind of worried. Uh, Second point. The plan. We've seen the place, now we get the plan. Look at verses 3 to 4. And notice in particular these three let us. Three times we get let us, let us. Once these people have settled, they begin to scheme. So let's look. Verses 3 to 4. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The plan. What is their plan? Well, to state it, Succinctly, to use local building materials to create a great city with a great tower that reaches high into the heavens. And by doing this, they will establish their preeminent reputation and perpetual security. That's, that's basically what is going on. But once again, let's look at what's going on here a little more deeply. What is, what is behind this text? What's underneath these words? What is the sin that we find here in these verses? And once again, I want to give you a few words. I want to give you three words this time. Three words to help you understand what's going on here. First, idolatry. Second, pride. And third, unbelief. And let me just say this. All of these spring from independence. All of these spring from a mind that has decided to go its own way. Not God's way. So let's look first at idolatry. As those who have declared their independence from God, they try to find their own way of approaching God or the gods. They, they, they make their own road. That's the problem with unbelievers is that as unbelievers, people lay their own path. They lay their own road to God. 
This is the reason that the world at the end of the day, you can be as culturally savvy as you want to be. You can be as cool as you want to be. But at the end of the day, the world hates the exclusivity of Christianity. It hates the words, Jesus is the only way. And the world will reject you if that's what you believe. No matter how much you try to be friends with the world, the world hates that idea that there is only one way. Here we have at Babel, a, a kind of paving a way to God. Rather than walking with God, trusting his promises and obeying his word, they decide they will reach the divine with their own efforts and ingenuity. They make this great city. They'll put up this great tower and they will reach their way into the heavens. This is the mother of all pagan worship. And, and listen to this. That's the reason why the Bible always wants to take us back to Babylon. Babylon, Babylon. It's because here we have the beginnings of mass pagan worship. We are to understand a kind of idolatry in the life of Cain. We are to understand a kind of idolatry in Eve and Adam's heart. Idolatry is always interwoven with sin. But here on a mass scale, we are seeing the beginning of paganism. The beginning of all world false religions. And we see... This effort to make its way to God, to reach the gods in the later ziggurats. I don't know if you've ever been to the ancient Near East, if you've ever been to Iraq. Uh, I have not, but you can look online and you can see pictures of particularly the ziggurat at Ur. And I don't know if, you, uh, if you've ever seen that before, but a ziggurat is a very interesting, it's a very impressive looking structure. It's a stepped structure, so imagine a pyramid, but not a pyramid. It goes up in that way, but, but on these various levels. So you have the base, and then it goes up, it comes in a little bit, it goes up again, and you have another base, it goes up again, three, four high, and at the very top you have this little house of the gods, And that's where they would go up to the top and they would meet with the heavens. They would meet with God. We we don't know that the structure in Babel was like a ziggurat, but probably something like that. Because we would imagine that all ziggurats are really a, a later expression of the people who happened to stay in Mesopotamia. A later expression of that original evil design to build a tower up to the gods. Incredible structures meant to gain communion with the gods. In fact, the Babylonians understand their name, Babylon, to be the gate of the gods, Babili. But in fact, we know from Scripture here what Babel means, that it means confusion. It's not meant to denote gate of the gods, but there's a twisting there. No, it's not confusion, it's gate of the gods. That's how we get ourselves to God. So we have here the idolatry. Now I want to give you the second word, pride. Pride. This one is pretty obvious. Probably one of the most striking features of this story is the emphasis these people put on their name, their renown, their reputation. Let us make a name for ourselves. This is in your face. I mean, this is so explicit. This is in your face. Self-exaltation. As Protestant evangelicals, as Reformed Protestant evangelicals, we have a phrase that goes back to the Reformation. Many of you have seen it or heard it or said it, sola deo gloria. It literally, it's a Latin phrase and it literally means glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. This has been one of the key features of Christian theology. I won't say Protestant. This is one of the key features of Christian theology for the last 2,000 years, but especially and explicitly among Protestants since the Reformation or Christians in the Protestant sphere since the Reformation. And the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is one of the great statements of faith for teaching children that we have coming out of the Reformation It says this, first question, you ask your child, imagine living in 17th century England or Scotland or in the Americas. You ask your child, your little five-year-old, six-year-old, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? 
Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man, what, don't you want to hear that come out of your child's mouth? Then do catechism. And I'll say this, we do that here uh, at our church, 930. We'll be starting that, not now, but we're, we, we have been doing it. We'll be starting it. I'm going to put a plug in here that this is one of the key ways that you ingrain. By the way, we do want to indoctrinate our kids. I know that the world says that that sounds kind of icky. That's bad word. No, that's wonderful. We want to teach into them. That's what indoctrination means. We want to indoctrinate our kids. Praise God we get to do that. And don't give them over to Babylon to indoctrinate them. So we indoctrinate our children. We teach them. And one of the key ways we do this is through catechism. That was just a side note. But the point was this idea of the glory of God being at the center of all of our purposes. This is the overwhelming message of the Bible. Isaiah 63, 14, God's great acts were to make for himself a glorious name. It's amazing. The name of God theology throughout the Bible, that God's name, God's name, God's name, his renown, his reputation. And then Christ is, the, is himself the very name of God. Christ is God's name, God's glory being displayed to the world. We exist for the renown of God on the earth, for the spread of worship. One of the things that we've been doing as a church for a little while now is we've just kind of started with a missions team. Four Corners Church has, has done various things with missions over the last 10 years or so that it has been in existence. But it's recently that we've started a missions team and we've got a greater intentionality, we hope, with, with how it is that we as a church are going to serve God in this way. But one of the things we talked about, we started this missions team when four of us got together as a kind of leadership team to, to start a team and to, to move beyond that. One of the guiding principles that we had was that missions exists for worship. That why is it that we do missions? Those poor people over there, we, they need to hear about Jesus. Oh, okay, yes, that's true. They do because without him, they will die in their sins. But the real ultimate reason we do missions is for the worship of God to spread in the world. We exist for God's glory, not just in our own hearts, but so others might glorify him. We want all the world to know God and celebrate his majesty. That's why our missions team exists. That's why we exist. That's why we exist as a church. That's why your family exists. That's why everyone exists. For the glory of God, not the glory of self. So here's a question for each of us. Each of us needs to ask this question as we come to this part of Scripture. How much of what I do is for the sake of self-promotion? Think about that for a moment. How much of what you do is for the sake of promoting you? That's a penetrating question that each of us has to ask every single day. When we seek self-promotion, we lose sight of heaven and we become fools. John Calvin says it this way. This is the world's perpetual folly. Listen to this. Having neglected heaven to seek immortality on earth where everything is perishable and passing away. I have mentioned this before, but it just came to my mind as I was preparing for this sermon. When we lived in Edinburgh, there were statues of famous people everywhere. Adam Smith and David Hume and other kinds of people. One of the most striking things, it always, it always lodged in my mind. It felt like it was, a, it was even a gift of God to see it in nature. Is that there are birds all over the place. You probably know where I'm headed. There are birds all over the place in that city. And sometimes I would look at these statues and they would be covered in bird poop all over the shoulders and the head going down the chest. What a testimony to the frailty and perishability of human glory. These great men, right? That's it. Statutes passed by so many people on the street. Nothing there but bird feces to adorn their glorious heads. That is the glory of man. That is the folly of living for ourselves with our breath-like life that will be here today and gone tomorrow. 
When we come to the end of this story, we'll see where pride leads us. James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The quickest way to invite opposition from the Lord in your life is your pride. Do you hear that? God hates, he hates human pride because it is so deceptive and wicked and idolatrous. He opposes the proud. Whoever exalts himself, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. We saw that with Nebuchadnezzar. He was brought to hands and knees eating grass. Go and read that. Daniel 4. Hands and knees eating grass for seven years. God threw him in the dirt. Made him eat worms. Maybe. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So we see idolatry and pride. But as we finish this morning, I want you to see one more thing and that is unbelief. Idolatry, pride, and unbelief. Now, hopefully, for you, what happens at Babel is becoming more and more wicked. What happens at Babel is becoming, for you, maybe a little bit more indicative of the sin that you see in your own heart, in your own sphere of influence in our world, on the news. Idolatry, pride, and now I want you to see, as we wrap up, unbelief. To state it simply, they are afraid. What are they afraid of? The text says that they, do, that they do all of this so that they will not be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In other words, they do not trust, catch this, they do not trust that God's plan of humanity filling the earth is for the best. If God said, fill the earth, that must be the best path forward for human beings. If God tells you one thing in his word and you want to do another, you must trust that that is the better way. That, that will result in human flourishing and human good better than your way, oh man. And that's what we have here. They do not trust that God's plan of filling the earth is for the best. They trust in their own judgment and plan, not in God's goodness and directive. God's good plan is put into question just as it was with Eve in the garden. I want you to see this. If they won't trust God's little plan, Catch this. If they don't trust God's little plan of dispersing on the face of the earth, then they certainly have no hope in his larger plan of redemption through the seed. And you know what? Oftentimes it might be easy for us to trust God with the big idea. Yes, God has saved me through Jesus. Jesus has purchased me with his blood. He has filled me with his spirit. And I'm going to be in heaven when I die. I'm saved. But then we live like pagans. We live with no faith in God. We live with no trust in him with the, the, the toils of life, the trials of life. We, 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 in theory, trust him in this big way, but we don't trust his purposes and his good directives in the smallest of things. And so we have here clear demonstration of their lack of trust in the redeeming God through the seed. So what do we have so far? Independence, misuse, idolatry, pride, and fearful unbelief. This is the city of man. And we're only halfway through. This is the city of man. This is our world. And hear this. This is every single person apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for exposing sin so well. God, how much you want to protect us from sin. You tell us in your word that Jesus came for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. Father, we thank you that he did accomplish that when he said on the cross, it is finished. That the work of the devil in our lives has been thwarted, undermined, done away with. But Father, we know that in this life, 
There is need for much vigilance. There is need for much attentiveness to your word. Need for much prayer and saturation with scripture. Need for companions in the faith. Need for church, worship, time together, bearing each other's burdens, confessing our sins, declaring our faith, celebrating the Lord's Supper, these means of grace, God, that you have given us to help us make it through to the heavenly city. Father, we ask that you would guard us, that you would take this story of the Tower of Babel, you would expose the sin in our own hearts, and you would show us Christ's way as we trust in his blood. It's in his name we pray. Amen.